Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sociology Talk podcast. Today we have an exciting guest. It's Dr. Annette Leroux, who is the author of Unequal Childhoods. I'm really excited to share this podcast interview with you. So stick around and enjoy. All right, welcome in. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, Here we have uh, Edmund and Louise Kahn, endowed professor of sociology, Annette Leroux. Um, at the University of Pennsylvania School of Arts and Sciences. Uh, She is the author of Unequal Childhoods, Class, Race, and Family Life, and has recently published a research methods book, Listening to People. So it's a pleasure having you. Thank you for for coming. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. So I just had a a few questions um, regarding Unequal Childhoods. I really love that book, and uh, I signed it in my senior seminar class. The students that I have in class seem to resonate with it pretty well. And just wanted to know if you can give us just a, you know, a brief idea of what the book is about. Sure. Well, all parents want their children to be healthy and happy. And yet in my study, which was based on interviews and what we call participant observation of children in fourth and fifth grade, excuse me, third and fourth grade, um, I learned that there were differences in how parents went about trying to give their children the biggest advantages in life. Mm -hmm. And there's a study of, it's a study that began in two classrooms, uh, um, a city school, which drew working class parents and a suburban school. And in both cases, I was studying white and African-American families. And the middle-class parents had this idea that they should, they saw their children as a project. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to develop their talents and skills. And using a gardening analogy, I call it concerted cultivation. And so there, there were three aspects of it in terms of extracurricular activities, language use, and intervention in institutions. So in extracurricular activities, middle-class parents enrolled their kids in a lot of activities. And they said, I don't want him to be Mozart, but I want him to know the, learn how to play the piano. And so they had many activities. It was very hectic and it was very hard for me to find a middle-class parent who did, whose child did not have a single organized activity. Hmm. And they all said, oh, we don't do uh, hockey. Hockey's crazy. But they all described how busy they were and the kids were busy. And many of the kids had three or four different activities at the same time, though often they were short, only eight weeks or so. And then the middle-class parents, in addition to having kids have organized activities, they tried to cultivate their language skills. And so they answered questions with questions. They reasoned with the kids. They very rarely used corporal punishment and they helped their children feel special in key ways. And then also when there's a problem in an institution, the parents intervened, they called teachers, they called doctors, they intervened and they tried to all along help children see that there were many opportunities in life and develop their children's talents and skills. And they would often say, like, she can do anything she wants. Mm -hmm. But by contrast, kids who grew up whose parents were in a working class background, who worked with their hands or worked in blue collar jobs, who often had a high school degree or high school dropouts, they had a different view. They often saw work looming as hard and difficult. And they were trying to protect their children, help their children have a respite from the difficult adulthood ahead. So those kids watched TV. They played with their cousins. They uh, hung out but they tended not to have organized activities. And if they did, it wasn't, it was just something the child wanted. It wasn't trying to give them special skills. And the parents often had directives and cut it out. Don't do that. They didn't engage in long explanations with reasoning. And then the parents trusted the school. They trusted the doctors. They trusted the professionals to take care of their kids, which was a reasonable thing to do. A lot of these parents were high school graduates or high school dropouts. We have a 15% uh, illiteracy rate in the United States. So they were looking up at people who were professionals. And so they turned over responsibility to the school and they tended to be deferential in school activities or in healthcare situations. Unfortunately, sometimes the teachers misunderstood that and thought it was a matter of parents not valuing education. Mm. So taken together with very scarce resources, a lot of these parents had very tough lives. Uh, the working class families had more, uh, were more economically stable. The poor families had more food shortages. Mm-hmm. But together, they, in general, they helped 
protect their children. And so the children had what I called the accomplishment of natural growth. In other words, they were just presumed that they would spontaneously grow and thrive if they took care of their basic needs, which they did. And so uh, the parent, now you would think both of these are wonderful ways to raise kids, but the middle-class way of concerted cultivation mapped on to institutions such as schools, workplaces, doctor's offices, and they had very narrow rules of the game. And so the middle-class kids ended up getting advantages that the working class kids did not get because of the way that their parents were raising them. And so they gained middle class kids had a sense of entitlement and the working class kids had more of a sense of constraint where they felt more uh, deferential towards people in positions of power. Right. Yeah. And it's um, I definitely resonate with that book pretty well. I, what's interesting is I feel like um, I weigh more on the side of uh, accomplishment, natural growth, how my parents raised me at least. But I do see that there are some elements of uh, concerted cultivation. Um, I did have some extracurricular activities, but not all. Um, But, you know, I I feel like, is there a continuum on, you know, where students fall? I know that some students in my class experience kind of both. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's hard for me to say I studied 88, get total of 88 kids who were white and black kids. I had 36 mm -hmm. middle class kids. And, um, you know, I had, I mean, the working class and poor kids had organized activities. They often had, but they had one or two. Right. They didn't have a steady diet of them. Mm. And also they, when they had them, they were just to keep them safe. When I interviewed mm. the young people many years later, the middle-class kids could describe all the things they learned from them and how they helped them in their college. They helped them stay organized, to help them learn how to work with adults. While the working class and poor kids, when they were young adults, said, oh, it was just something I did ah. just to keep me off the streets. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't only a matter of if they had organized activities, it was about the meaning of them. It was mm-hmm. about who initiated them. It's about what the whole neighborhood was doing. And similarly, sometimes... Yeah, there were times where middle-class parents gave kids directives, especially if it was dangerous. They'd say, stop it, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But overall, they had more reasoning. And sometimes, mm-hmm. similarly, working-class and poor families, they would answer a question and explain why they were doing it. But that was unusual. There was more of a steady diet of, of um, directives. So I'm sure there, I mean, there are kids who are, say, Asian-American immigrants who were very successful in college. I mean, it's kind of like, there are lots of ways to raise kids in America. It's mm-hmm. kind of like there are lots of ways to be rich in America. And uh, the best way to be rich in America is to be born into a rich family. That's the most straightforward method. If you look at the 400 richest people in America, a lot of them are extended, extended families. Mm-hmm. But are there people who make a fortune in Silicon Valley or in other places? Absolutely. So there are many different ways that people raise kids that can create success, but these are just two pathways that I identified. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, um, it's very interesting that, you know, you see language, you see those extracurricular, extracurricular activities, um, you see interventions in the institutions and ultimately all of these skills that are taught in middle-class families are something that are valued by institutions. Right. But, um, I do also, mentioned to my students that there are also valuable skills you do learn in accomplishment of natural growth, like, um, you know, being creative, you know, you mentioned in the yeah. book that they have to come up with their own games because they're not yeah. involved in so many extracurricular activities. I remember doing that with my cousins, um, just yeah. kind of coming up with rules and, you know, you're out mm-hmm. when this happens. And I think that's also, that's a very valuable skill to have. And then also resolving conflict um, amongst, you know, other peers you know, because you're always interacting with them. I think that's also a valuable skill. But the thing is, what I mentioned to students is that all these, although these skills are very valuable, it seems like they're not very, they're not valued within the institutions, right? That's right. So when I was watching in the fourth grade, if a kid said, oh, I have a piano recital, the teachers would stop what they were doing, look at them and say, oh, that's great. But Mm -hmm. if kids said, I saw something on TV, the teachers didn't value it in the same way. Right. So absolutely, kids learn autonomy. They learn how to be independent. They solve problems on their own. Mm-hmm. And we see this 
in kids, young adults who were first-generation college students where neither parent had a college degree. And we see that often those young people you know, are very good at budgeting their money and doing their laundry and getting themselves across town. And I just taught, had lunch with a young woman yesterday um, and she's Asian American and her parents came here from China and her dad works in a factory, was just recently laid off actually. And she filled out the entire college application by herself without any help from her parents. Mm. Her parents didn't really know what college was and they don't speak English. So, and the FAFSA is a very complicated form. I've seen professors complain to each other about how hard it is to, how hard it is to fill out, you know? Yeah. And so we have uh, young people from working class families who have just remarkable skills, resilience, grit, all kinds of activity, but those are, not recognized in the same way as like when you apply to college, when you apply to, I, I work at a, you know, a school that's literally in the Ivy league, which was a football league. actually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to get into Penn. And a lot of times they want kids who have a whole child who have not just good test scores or good grades, but have done activities. There's a book by Lauren Rivera called pedigree that when they were hiring people for very, very elite jobs in business and law, mm-hmm. they wanted people to have been like the first violin chair or had had started a foundation. So they were, and, but also they were looking for people who were like them, who they said, if we got stranded in an airport, mm-hmm. it's a snowstorm test. I want to make sure that these people would be my friends. So mm-hmm. they hired people like them. They yeah. hired people who had same social experiences as them. And that impedes all kinds of class diversity in America that creates many barriers and these sort of subtle social and cultural uh, experiences, which are very powerful. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just remember um, just that moment I realized I was different in terms of class um, and that cultural capital that I received, which was very different than my middle class peers is um, one day I was walking in to turn in this, uh, you know, you have to write something and apply for scholarships uh, before you go off to college. This was in high school. And I remember I was like, well, I think I should do that because I think it's important. <laughs> you know, I just kind of thought that. Nobody told, nobody told me that. Um, and so I walked in with one application, was single application I was going to turn in. And what I saw uh, was very interesting is, um, different students there with their parents and just kind of over their shoulders and helping them fill out these, this goes here. This is what you have to do for this. And I'm there by myself. And it's not because my parents didn't want to help me. It's just, they didn't know how to, you know, what these students, what these institutions required of me. I mean, they've always wanted me to do well and succeed in school, but they just didn't know uh, what these institutions required of me. I had to learn that kind of stuff along the way, which kind of, I mean, that that's like starting behind the starting line at the at a race, right? You have the middle-class students yeah. who are kind of built to understand. Uh, they take it for granted, their experiences and what they know, what yeah. they've learned. That's and true. they're already ahead of the game. Whereas, you know, working-class students, like the ones in my class, they they have to learn, like you mentioned, FAFSA, filling it all out and talking to advisors, which classes to take. They have to figure that out on their own. So they're navigating this territory territory that is very unfamiliar to them. And so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, just the way that you've um, really wrote the book sheds light on that in a very... Um, you know, in an interesting way. So I really appreciate it. Um, I guess one question I had was what, what made you decide to take on this project? Well, um, you know, I wouldn't say I was a very, I was kind of a hapless undergrad. I declared my major the first day of my senior year because they wouldn't let me register unless I declared. So it wasn't like I always knew what I was doing. I actually went to University of California, Santa Cruz for my undergraduate. And um, I just kind of took classes. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, 
And I mean, I did work cleaning house. My parents were just school teachers. So, mm-hmm. you know, I came from a middle-class family. My mother was upwardly mobile. My mother grew up in a very poor family in New York. And I think that did make a difference in our lives in, in key ways. Um, they both, my, both my parents liked to read. And I have done interviews with upwardly mobile young people and almost always somebody likes to read. And knowing how to read is a huge advantage or, or not, not knowing how to read, but liking reading because that really helps to build your verbal skills and your language skills, helps your writing. And it's good for college students just to read, to read the New York Times, to read books, to read novels. Reading is a good people. But my parents, um, my parents, my dad was in the Navy and I was, um, it was after World War II because mm-hmm. I was born in 1952, only seven years after World War II ended. And um, so my parents situated in this, community, which was a very affluent community called in, uh, it was called Marin County. It's north of San Francisco. And my parents, who were school teachers, um, they were very uncom- unconventional people. And they, were, they, both, they both loved to read and they were, you know, they were very good people. They were both eth- very ethical, but they didn't really fit into this, eth- this very posh community where they put us in. Mm. And so they, you know, they got clothes from the Goodwill. My dad thought it was really good to get things from the dumpster dumpster because you could save money. My dad was unemployed for a few years. Mm. He was always fixing up cars. And so, I mean, it was a perfectly middle-class life, but it was not, it was not the kind of neighbors that we had at all. And I think that made me aware of some kind of social stratification that people had different social strata Mm. and, I was very interested in that. It was also a white community because they had legally barred blacks from black families from buying homes in part of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in that in, in inequality. You know, I just didn't understand why some people had lots of wealth and other people didn't. And it seemed very unfair to me. And I was interested in understanding that more deeply. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it makes sense when you think of uh, you you just tell the average person, you know, if some if you have a child that's born and raised in, let's say, Eastside L.A. or something, and a, uh, another child the same age born in Beverly Hills, which one do you think is going to have a, you know, <laughs> an easier go at yeah. life, you know, or, or yeah. in terms of wealth? Mm-hmm. And I think the average person would easily say that person in Beverly Hills, right? Um but it's interesting how you've actually kind of created these like mapped out how that process actually unfolds. You know, what, why is it that a, a student that's born in this side of town uh, versus right. a student that's born in this side of town will have different opportunities right off the bat, you know? And so, yeah, it's very, it's a very interesting book. And you had mentioned a little bit about um, your childhood. Do you feel like your childhood reflected or resembled one of the students in the book more than the other, or I guess. Not right. I mean, that? partly I'm, I, I was, as I say, I was born in 1952 and the kind of childhoods mm-hmm. I'm describing, I think began to take shape in uh, the late 1970s around 1980. Okay. Before, Cause when I interviewed the parents, not a single parent had raised, been raised the way they were raising their kids. And so, in other words, none of the upper middle class parent, middle class parents I interviewed had three and four organized activities when they were kids. Sometimes they had one, like piano and church, maybe, but they didn't have this frenetic, you know, in the book, I say, if the 19th century, the center of the house was the hearth, the fireplace, and now the center of the home is the calendar. And so you have a little five-year-old who gets invited to a birthday party and it's not clear they can go. And then the mom says, oh, Mrs. Tellinger, so you're in luck. We're home that weekend. Mm-hmm. And so it's so hectic that you can't, everyone's busy, busy, busy. And everyone's like running around exhausted. The kids aren't very nice to each other. So there are many drawbacks of being, and also I think, you know, I, I remember one time I was in a cab and I was next to a professor and the professor's kid, I was in New York and the professor's kid was in California. And this is before GPS. The professor's kid was calling to ask the parent in New York how to get across town in Los Angeles, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like 
you know, there were many other alternatives besides calling a mother. But so you see this sort of what I call excessive dependence of upper middle class kids on their parents and their inability to do really important life skills. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also there's some amount of anxiety as well, because um, there's a lot of worry about if, you know, this issue, this sort of perfectionism, you know, people dropping out of a class because they might get a C when it'll ruin their A average kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it definitely is like, like context does uh, matter when it comes to this study. And one of the uh, questions I had for you was, um, if you were to do this research today, do you think that you would get similar results? Um, and why do you, why do you, why or why not? I mean, I can't be sure, but um, I, 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 I do see these patterns continuing. I have a doctoral student, Peter Harvey, H-A-R-V-E-Y, and he uh, just completed a study in a, a private school and also in a working class school. And he has an article coming out in the American Journal of Sociology. And they had the exact same curriculum, which turned out to be a fortuitous experience. And in, uh, it was called Responsive Classroom. So every morning, there's supposed to be a morning meeting. And in the middle class school, they taught their kids literally how to shake a hand and how to look somebody in the eye. And it turns out to be pretty hard to learn how to shake a hand. And they had to teach the kids over and over and over and over again. Look me in the eye. Look at me. Look at me. Do it. <laughs> Sit, you know, and, and the working class kids. And by the end of the year, the kids got better at it. And, uh, and they didn't do it with each other on the playground, but they knew how to do it with adults. Hmm. Well, in the school that enrolled kids from working class families, it was in the curriculum. But that school had fewer teachers and uh, the teacher didn't do it, didn't teach the kids. And, um, and she certainly didn't correct the kids if the kids did it incorrectly. Like some kids would, like a fish, wave their hand up and down three or four times or um, look at the ground and mumble. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the year at this spring event, the kids in the private school uh, all shook the principal in the eye and hand and looked them in the eye. And, and the kids in the working class school, who were very excited to meet the principal as they walked across the stage, uh, looked down, mumbled, didn't maintain eye contact, and didn't uh, do what we would call a standard handshake. Mm-hmm. And so, and this research was done like two years ago. Hmm. And so, and similarly, the differences in organized activities were very different. The sense of entitlement was very different. And so I, I do think you still see, I think current research coming out shows uh the patterns quite clearly okay yeah interesting um i would say i would say that um you had mentioned the timeline of the of the study and what children that would apply to i think i was actually in there (laughs) but uh yeah because i definitely resonate with it uh the students that i teach so csub serves like a majority of um i guess mostly hyper, I should say high percentage of working class students. And so they, when they read the accomplishment of national growth, they're like, that's me, you know, (laughs) and they can really, um, it's a great book for like discussion because it's about your own life experiences and everybody can Mm -hmm. kind of say, this is how my life fits within this concept or this idea. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. And I guess if I can just interject there for a second. I think what's interesting is that we have a very vivid language of race in America, mm-hmm. you know, but for example, I had a Asian and Vietnamese American student come into my office. Who's upwardly mobile. Her dad works in a factory and her mom collects cans on the street, you know, in Southern California. And um, so they're in a pen, they'll get a full tuition ride for being in pen if you can get into pen. And and she, she read the book and she said, this is my family. This was my experience. Yeah. And so uh, many Americans are very fixated on, on race, you know, and, and, sh- and to be sure, there's lots of important dynamics that matter by race, but we also have dynamics that matter by class mm-hmm. and, but we have less of a language of class in America. And so, um, yeah, it's a great honor that people see, can see themselves in the book. Yeah. And, 
And I mean, somebody told me she taught the book in Maryland. And she said one of her middle class kids said, I'm a poster child for concerted cultivation. Like, this is my life. Mm -hmm. And so we have different class backgrounds in America and we have different class backgrounds of people who come to college as well. Right. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, some students, when I asked them about the book and um, I asked them the same question, do you think that um, the results would be the same or different? Some students actually think that technology has a big part in it and that, um, you know, tablets and being on the internet, gaming, uh, that might be keeping some um, who may be considered the concerted cultivation indoors more and less involved in extra yeah. activity. I don't know for sure because I haven't read any studies about that, but um, what do you, what do you think about technology and, and the effects of the results? Yeah. I, I do think technology is very powerful in many aspects of daily life. So we look at young adults, they're doing everything less. They're less likely to have a driver's license. They're less likely to have unwanted pregnancies. They're less likely to go out drinking. Young adults are staying home or staying in their room, playing on their tablets and their phone. And people are almost a little phobic, like it's hard for them to get out and see people Making a phone call is difficult for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going to see people is going to office hours is difficult. You know, even middle-class kids because they've just sort of gotten in the, and I think uh, during the time of COVID uh, that's made things worse because people were more socially isolated and being socially isolated is not good for people. We know that from sociological research. Um, People are more prone to have health problems, to have more prone to have psychological problems. So, yeah, I think that technology has certainly transformed people's lives. And also, I think uh, Instagram and Facebook has made people have more of an idealized self, you know, prettier, Mm -hmm. healthier, stronger, smarter. People are always putting these idealized selves on social media. Mm -hmm. And then that makes people feel more inadequate because their daily lives don't ever measure up to this idealized self. And that creates complications as well. Um, But on the general pattern of is there disparity in how parents are involved in in homework and reading to kids and signing kids up for activities and reasoning with them, helping them navigate college and so forth. I don't think that, I do think that those patterns still hold up. And in that way, technology is a tool like you apply for college now by technology rather than by um, using paper and pencil. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes some working class kids can learn a lot through technology. They can learn about colleges that they wouldn't have learned about before because they would have been completely dependent on their counselor. And now they can just Google it. So I think there's a little bit of democratization with the internet, but overall people are very dependent on the knowledge of the counselors and their parents. And we do see class differences like uh, working. There are some very high performing working class kids who don't apply to elite colleges and that's called undermatching. And that is a very well-documented pattern even today. Okay. Yeah. Um, Did you, I know you had uh, mentioned before the podcast that you had lived in California for a bit. And uh, when I, when I introduce this book to students in my class, sometimes I'll get uh, either a DACA student or um, a student who um, is first generation. And they're the ones that have to be the interpreters for their parents when, um, you know, for survival in society, right. In in the U S and they feel that they've experienced more of an uh, concerted cultivation type of, upbringing due to survival Mm. like some students uh, mentioned that they knew what a checking account was at a very early age Um, they had to fill out documents in the post office for their parents and so they're more in tune with the demands of institutions than the average um, I guess working class person at that age did you have any Uh, students that maybe experienced that or come across? Um, 
I, I didn't in this study. I just wrote a book with a, a person named Blair Sackett on refugees mm-hmm. and from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And um, it's about uh, right now it's called the Seeking Refuge, Finding Inequality. And California is going to, University of California Press is going to publish it probably in uh, 2023, though it's not out yet. Mm. And, we do, and the title may change. But um, anyway, it's a study of, of refugees, people who, were repl- who fled war or political challenges because of horrendous, terrible problems like in the Ukraine or in Afghanistan and uh, were placed in the United States. And you don't choose where you want to go. So for people who are what we call cultural brokers, they talk to doctors, they translate, they learn about forms, and they have what we call adultification. They become like adults very early as little kids. Mm-hmm. And they even at nine and 10, they know a lot. Um, and so they have tremendous skills. And they, and they do know key rules of the game, such as of uh, learning how to do a money order, or open a checking account, something like that. I guess for me, when I thought about class differences, I was talking not simply about basic life skills, but kind of cultural knowledge, ease, familiarity with um, high status cultural knowledge, mm-hmm. which is what the work, what Pierre Bourdieu would call it. And right. so what I would call cultural capital. And so I would say what the cultural brokers are doing is extremely valuable, helping their families and helping their families survive. But the cultural knowledge they have, I don't always think is high status cultural knowledge. And I would make a difference in the kinds of cultural knowledge the young people are learning. Mm-hmm. But I do, in the refugee book, we do find that there's lots of, there are a lot of mistakes in institutions where they lose, like in, in Philadelphia, if you move across the county line, you lose your food stamps instantly because wow. food stamps are organized around the county unit. And so there are many problems that come up. Uh, right now we had, we had fraud in our bank account. And so we had to change our bank account and I signed up for our gas and electric bill and I put a credit card in there, but for inexplicable reasons, they didn't use the credit card. And now we're trying to pay them. And they said, we have to go and get um, a money order with cash. And it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. You have to go to a dollar store and you have to get the cash and you have to take it and you can only do a couple of places. So the kinds of knowledge that a lot of these younger people have is just unbelievably complicated and difficult for them Mm -hmm. to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very valuable cultural knowledge, but I still think there's a difference in the, the Oh, sorry. sorry. I, don't, I don't think I caught that last part. You said that there's a difference in the status of cultural knowledge. Oh, okay. so for example, if you're interviewing for an elite job, knowing about squash or knowing about tennis or knowing about traveling in Europe is more highly valued than knowing about a checking account or how to pay a bill. Mm-hmm. And so in certain circles, certain kinds of cultural knowledge are very valuable, but they tend to be sort of restrictive high status cultural knowledge okay. and that in certain, in certain levels of inequality. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely very interesting. Um, also, I mean, the social ties you have to within your network that also can influence your, uh, the resources you have access to the opportunities that you may have. Um, there's this book uh, by Dr. Uh, Michael Kimmel and he had mentioned that uh, there was a study done based on, and this is kind of has to do with social capital um, and your life opportunities. He mentioned that the space between the T's in golf um, deter or had an influence on one's promotion, promotion in, in their career or whatever. And what he, mm-hmm. what he's, how he interpreted that was that the farther the way that the T's were the more often people had to get into a golf cart have conversations with each other to the next tee and that's when opportunities promotions and those kind of experiences happen so he said the longer apart the tees were the more uh people could excel in their career it was very interesting that uh, is interesting social capital you know that definitely has 
you know, there's cultural capital, there's social capital, they're all interacting at the same right. time. Right. They're all occurring at the same time. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that study. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> I don't um, know the name of it. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I, I wish I had it on me, but uh, it's okay. in, his, in his book. But uh, okay, great. So I guess um, one of the last questions I had was um, you had mentioned some things that could mitigate inequality at the in the book. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was? Well, I think I mean there we do have upward mobility in America, and we do have downward mobility. It's mm-hmm. not the most dominant pattern, but we. We certainly want to, many people have had remarkable life journeys. I'm doing a study now of very wealthy people, people have more than $10 million. And I've interviewed people who were very poor as kids and got food from the Salvation Army and now have $20 million. Mm -hmm. So it does happen in America. It's just very rare. And also there are a lot of middle-class kids who just don't end up with great jobs and don't end up working and end up falling socially. So, but it's clear that teachers are very consequential. You know, almost everybody who's upwardly mobile has had a teacher who's helped that person. And teachers are very important. And I think we need to honor and respect the little teachers. Uh, being clear about the rules of the game or what about what it takes to do. Like now when I teach, I always say, what is a literature review? Because Or what's graduate school? Because there are students in my class who are first gen and they've never heard of a literature review or graduate school. So I need to define all key terms. And so literature review is when you read some articles and you summarize those articles, and we call those articles a literature about social science research. Mm-hmm. And you summarize them, that's called literature review, graduate school, school where you go after college and often get a master's degree or a PhD. Mm-hmm. And so even those little definitions of transparency can be very helpful, especially for people who are trying to learn the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Of course, reducing college debt would be incredibly helpful. And um, reducing the price of going to college would be very helpful for um, in promotion and promoting mobility as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So education, um, I think that uh, was it mentioned in the book, the like the like payments to children and therefore they can kind of get their like, let's say, working class poor uh, families can start to include their children to more extracurricular activities, like a it was like a child's income or something like that. A child's income support would be very helpful. Yeah. Um, we had briefly in the Biden administration a child tax credit and it cut mm-hmm. hunger forty percent. And hunger is very bad for little kids. Mm-hmm. Hunger is food shortages are really not. A, if you wanted to damage kids, making them hungry would be a very good way to do it. Right. So uh, reducing hunger would be very helpful. And um, also having programs to provide cash assistance to families would be very helpful. Right. And also having remedial programs at like CUNY, City University of New York has a very good program. You know, a lot of kids who graduate from high school aren't, um, they can't pass tests to get into college. It's very common. And so having a program that helps people navigate College and also actually having a standardized curriculum in the community college is very helpful so that kids don't lose a, you know, to take a class and then not have it qualify is very frustrating. And so you need advising to help people. You need a lockstep program or you need very good advising to help people not make mistakes in their college career because it's very common that kids will sign up for a class, young people, and they won't know which right, what's the right class to do. And they'll end up having losing, having taken a whole class that may not help towards graduation. So being, teaching people, I do mandatory office hours in my classes. Even with a class of 150, I can do uh, mandatory office hours if I give it four weeks and 10 minutes per student. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the help of a TA. And so I think getting students in for a mandatory officer and, and trying okay. to help students, you know, they're not bothering faculty. This is faculty's job. Jack faculty like to meet students. Mm-hmm. You know, there's occasional crank and someone might be rude to them, but in general, faculty really enjoy talking to young people and they're not wasting their time. And if they get an A in a class, they have a right to get a letter of recommendation. They shouldn't hesitate to ask. Mm-hmm. And so they're not bothering people if they ask for a letter of recommendation. That's part of faculty job. So right. I think also teaching first-gen kids what they have the right to do to manage and, and helping them develop those skills would be very helpful. Okay. 
yeah, very interesting. Um, I know one of my high schools or as my high school that I went to, um, what I found was very interesting was that they took you to a university campus as a field trip. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that that was awesome because my parents never thought to take me to, let's say, USC mm-hmm. or, or CCU Long mm-hmm. Beach or Cal Poly, whatever. And um, by doing that, it's kind of getting the students familiar with that environment, mm-hmm. being in there, what it entails. And so I think that that's also something I think a lot of high schools or, or schools can incorporate. It's just um, getting them familiar with the setting itself and yeah, what that looks like. Right. And um, yeah, I think that also you had mentioned teaching young students uh, what what are the demands of the institution, what what are expected of you, the requirements, the challenges. Um, and yeah, I think that that's very interesting. And so we have this, we, we know due to your, I mean, because of the book, we find that institutions tend to value middle-class skills and knowledge ultimately, right? Um, right? Do you think that there's a way where institutions can adjust to value accomplishment of natural growth skills? Like, so for instance, when um, there's budget cuts, the main, the first thing that could be cut is like music or art, right? Those things don't tend to be valued as much as um, other things. And I feel like you know, accomplishment of natural growth, those students tend to thrive in that creativity that, that, right. but it's not valued. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's hard for me to say there. I mean, schools historically have had a role in sorting people for jobs mm-hmm. and they're only, if they're only, if they're only a limited number of good jobs in America. Mm-hmm. And so schools historically have sort of, stamp people and help them legitimate them as being particularly well qualified for particular jobs. And so I'm not sure what it means to evaluate the, I mean, to have a broader set of criteria for evaluation. I mean, it's certainly worth thinking about, Mm -hmm. but um, I, I, I guess we just have to think about it because I think employers and other ones count on schools for sorting kids in key, in key ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, um, I won't say the name of the, of the university, but I had, I had had a conversation with one of the instructors and um, I, w- I was taking the GRE, right? Right. And one of the sections in the GRE is vocabulary. And like, do yeah. you know specific words? And I feel like, yeah. I was like, I feel like this is more of a middle-class knowledge, you know, <laughs> like I'm not taught the, this type of vocabulary. It's not in our everyday conversation in working class families. And right. so I asked the instructor, I said, how, how much do you value <laughs> the, the GRE and the results? Right. And she told me basically that we, we know that tests are designed for certain people to succeed middle-class students. Right. And um, she said, just take it, you know, and, and, it's just yeah. a requirement, but that's not yeah. something that's taken like, oh, they did this poorly on this exam. So we're not going to accept yeah. them, you know? So right. I guess in some ways, maybe institutions can keep that in mind. That would be my argument. Yeah, I think so. Though there's some evidence that essays also, I mean, a lot of middle-class kids get help from parents and tutors on their essays. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, there's a way I think people from blue collar backgrounds shouldn't be shy about asking for help and asking for help from their advisors, asking people to read their essays, asking their teachers, go writing three or four drafts, because a lot of middle class kids are getting that kind of help. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think trying to have that's why some people are going to a lottery system, you know, okay. for, for admissions to some people recommend that for admissions to uh, prestigious colleges or or even jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the better, better measurement of how one will succeed in, in school is not just a basic SAT score, but how they did in high school, right. How they performed. Exactly. And I think that that's exactly. a better measurement. Um, exactly. Yeah. But uh, okay. And so um, I just want to fin- fit this last question. in because I think it's very fascinating at the end of the book, uh, when you went back and met those, uh, children who are, were then now, or they were young adults, right? Um, 
you had mentioned that a lot of <laughs> a lot of families were upset with the results. Um, you know, some you had said you made us look like white trash. You made you made it look like some affluent families drink wine. We drink beer. And so um, you had mentioned that one piece of advice you would give to a student or somebody doing ethnography would be to run those results by that um, population before publication. Um, was that something that you had? No, I, I actually, I view is that, I mean, I had warned them ahead of time. I'm like, okay. oh, you know, when people take your picture and everyone else thinks it looks good and you don't look like the look of it. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, you know, it's common that people don't like the results. I would prefer that people, I, what I wished I'd done was written sort of a glossy brochure. A lot of people thought it was going to be like wedding photography. It was going to be like an idealized view of their family life. I see. And even their real names weren't used, but they felt hurt by it. You mm -hmm. know? And so I have an autistic son and, um, I would be in a study I would agree to be in a study and I would put him in a study, even though he's not legally competent. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure it would hurt my feelings, mm -hmm. but I believe in research, you know? Right. So, so I would do is I would have given them a more glossy, simplified summary of it. I would have not given them the book. Mm. And I think that people being upset with you is sort of part of the price of doing business. Like we know we've just gone through this terrible COVID disaster and uh, people did side effects and people, when they test drugs, people get side effects. And in very, very, very rare cases in developing drugs, people can die. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to accept that in doing research, there are costs to doing research. And in my case, hurting people's feelings is part of it. Mm -hmm. and, and there's not any easy answer to that, in my opinion. Um, and, but I think we have a duty to do research. We have a duty to warn people tell them about it, give them a chance to withdraw if they don't want to be in it. But I don't think we can expect that people who we study will necessarily love. Now, some people did love the results, some people, and it, I think that made the kids feel special to be in the book. Mm -hmm. And some of the families still feel special for having been in the book, but it wasn't uniform, but in some cases it was hurtful to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the nature of research. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's uh, very interesting. You had mentioned giving them like a glossy uh, understanding of what the book's about, the results, and yeah. not everything's going to be like wedding pictures, right? All the all yeah. the nice aspects. It's going to be you know what reality is, you know, and right. yeah, and so um, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, gosh, I yeah. lost I lost my train of thought. Uh, well. I'll tell you a funny story. I was, I was talking to yesterday, someone who was a teaching assistant for me and I was teaching introduction to sociology at 150 kids. And on the last day I class, I said, you know, a lot of people will get married or have lifelong partners. And uh, there's a rising expectations for marriage that you're your soulmate, your best friend and all this. I said, you want to have a happy relationship? You know what you should do? You should lower your expectations. You should lower your expectations until they're similar to the other marriages around you. Mm. You know, family yeah. life is difficult. <laughs> There's a lot of conflict in family life. Yes. Siblings have, you know, people are mean to each other. People say hurtful things. People are annoying. And yet family life is deeply meaningful and deeply important to all of us. Mm -hmm. But we have an overly romanticized view of the family, which is not helping anybody. And mm -hmm. I think we need more realistic accounts of family life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole uh, simulation, simulacra, right? <laughs> they kind of just see these TV shows and right. that's the, that's the life that, that's yeah. what my life should look like. Right. And, that's uh, yeah, it's not, yeah. So lower your expectations. Um, yeah, that I, I remember what I was, uh, what I was thinking about was that there was an individual in the book, I think just, um, you had mentioned just giving them an overall view of what the book would be about the results. Um, I mean, do you think that would have been helpful for, I can't remember the name of the person, but um, they were very upset with the results. And then they actually had a sociology um, scholar come into their house, see that book on the shelf and say, right. oh, you have that book. And, and then it took that person to explain the right. meaning, overall meaning of the book in order for them to understand it. Yeah, yeah. it was the, the, uh, it was the, um, the family. 
And she was a white working class woman. She was cleaning a sociology professor's house. Oh, okay, yes. And 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 he explained the book to her, and that was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And so I still see that family, and uh, so some of the families I still see, and I visit them and I talk to them. And in the end, some of the families got over it. Uh, some of the families didn't, but some of the families who had been mad, mad got over it. Mm-hmm. And I still send a gift to the families okay. uh, at Christmas for the ones I'm in touch with. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I guess just an overall review of what the book would be about <laughs> could have been helpful, right? Kind of, um, I guess, what that lady needed, right? To, to really understand the book and not be know. upset. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, when I mention uh, ethnography and, and research methods, I try to let them know, you know, that there's going to be friendships, connections that you make with people. Some people are going to feel like, uh, you know, you violated their trust or, or what, what it yeah. may, may or yeah. may not be, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can run it by people ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I'm writing a book now about wealthy families, and I might run it by them before I publish it. I haven't decided, but um, there might be some things I can't fix, but there might be some things I could fix, little Mm -hmm. things that wouldn't affect the argument of the book. And I would definitely change that if I could. Okay, yeah. So that, um, I guess we kind of answered that, but my, my question would have been, uh, what would what advice would you give someone who wants to conduct fields research ethnography? I guess number one, number one thing that you would uh, piece of advice you would give them. I would write your field notes within 24 hours, and I would use very vivid words and detailed words, and try to remember you're, you're on somebody's on your shoulder and looking over, and you're trying to do a visual image of what you're still what you're there. Mm-hmm. So people describing you know the sounds, the smells, the light. So you feel like you draw a picture of what happened in daily life and uh, you get better at it over time and it's a learnable skill. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, when I was doing my book, I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't always feel capable or competent, but by just moving ahead and getting feedback from other people, I learned as I went. And so a lot of people who are quote unquote famous now had a lot of rejection and failure in their life. Mm-hmm. It didn't always go well, but they they succeeded, and you and uh, you can succeed too. And a mm-hmm. lot of it is just by trying to do the best you can and taking one step at a time. Right. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, look at the first step, not the whole staircase. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. I also I wanted to end by also uh, mentioning your your book, uh, listening to people, which is a research methods book. I'll be very, I'll make sure to, to get me a copy. Uh, I want to also thank you for being with us. Really appreciate your time and, um, you know, your being able to speak with us. So yeah, thank you for that. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear more on the lives and work of sociologists, please subscribe and see the available episodes. Take care.